Take your Bible, if you would, uh, and turn with me. This is uh, our next installment of our series as we are journeying through Holy Week. This is uh, Palm Sunday, but we talked about Palm Sunday a couple weeks ago, so uh, we're actually today going to talk about the crucifixion and what Jesus did for us on the cross. So, in our last installment last week, we ended with Jesus on trial with the religious leaders, the high priests, the elders, the scribes. The whole Jewish council had met, and they had gone through this sham legal proceeding the night before where they take Jesus, they had arrested him, they have this, this trial, pronounce at the end a unanimous decision, Jesus was deserving of death. Now it's Friday morning. Jesus has been up all night, they've beaten him, and now at first light, uh, in what is known as, on the day that is known as now, Good Friday, the day of Jesus' crucifixion. And oh, by the way, the reason it's called Good Friday, we may wonder about that, why if Jesus died on Friday, that we call it Good Friday. It's Good Friday because it led to the resurrection of Jesus, and it led to the fact that our sin has been taken care of. We have eternal life in Christ, all because of the cross. And so that's why it's Good Friday. Horrible for Jesus, wonderful for us. So now, it's Friday. It's 6 a.m. Mark 5.1 records, as soon as it was morning. See, the sentence that they had, they'd come to the conclusion of the night before, uh, in the early morning hours, that decision, according to Jewish law, had to be confirmed the next day in, in a trial of this magnitude. And so, it's the next day. And so, at first light, on the next day, the sentence is confirmed Mark, yeah, Mark 15, 1 records that Jesus, together they decide that Jesus deserves to die. Now, even this top, what was the top Jewish court, the, basically the Supreme Court of their day, even though they had pronounced him deserving death, they didn't have the authority to actually carry out that sentence. That could only be done because they were, they had been, you know, they, this is occupied Israel. The Romans had, had conquered them. And so the Romans are in charge. And so they have to take this, this, this decision that they've made of condemning Jesus. They have to get approval. They have to get the Romans to sign off on that. They have to do it. And so they send Jesus to the one that was the top Roman authority of, the, of that region, the governor of this region, and it's Pilate. And so at first light, as morning breaks, they're on the doorstep of the Roman governor, Pilate. They lay out the charges for Jesus. Last week when Pilate, I told you just briefly, when you're kind of summarizing what this trial was in the back and the forth, uh, when Pilate learns that Jesus is from Galilee, he decides to send Jesus to Herod. Herod was the, was the, the leader they, that the, the, the Romans had put, the Jewish leader. He was the leader of the, the area just to the north of Galilee. And so Pilate decides, because their relationship wasn't that great, decides, well, well, I'll throw Herod a bone. I'll send him, Jesus, to, to Herod, because his jurisdiction. And so that's what he does. So Herod questions Jesus. They mock Jesus more. The religious leaders are there. They continue to accuse him. But in the end, he sends him back to Pilate, not making a decision on his fate. And so now here he is back at 
back with Pilate, and it's about 9 a.m. So a few hours, this back and forth has taken a few hours. It's around 9 a.m., just before 9 a.m. And Pilate, having not found any real reason to pronounce him guilty, but, but by the pressure of the crowd and the pressure of the religious leaders, and this crowd is, is, is growing and the pressure is mounting, he finally relents. And we see in Mark chapter 15, we're going to focus here and on. Listen to these words. So Pilate, here's his decision. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I'm sure there are lots of things going on in Pilate's mind that made him come to this conclusion. The crowd was growing. The crowd is, is, is wanting him to be crucified, egged on by the, by the religious leaders. I'm sure one of the primary influencers, the crowd, the pressure, all of that, he had this pressure to keep the peace. That was a key thing. If he wanted to remain in power, he had to keep the peace. The Jewish people had a history of revolution, and his job was to keep the peace. And if giving Jesus, even though he didn't find any real reason for him to be guilty, if it helped to calm the crowd and help to keep the peace, well... (laughs) doesn't matter to him to pronounce judgment on someone who's not actually guilty. And so even though he really hasn't found a reason, he proclaims him guilty. And he sentences him to death, delivers him to be crucified. Now, real quick, let me interject two things. It's really important for us to understand. The first is this, that when we read the, the gospel of Mark, we read the story, and actually we read the other gospel writers, we, we sometimes might be like, why is there not more detail about the crucifixion? It seems... There's a lot that went on. There's really a six-hour period of time, and there's not a ton of detail. We need to be reminded of something I shared several weeks ago, but it's good to continue to remind ourselves. The Bible is written for us that the Bible was not originally written to us. It was written into a particular time and place. And so as Mark is recording this story of Jesus, he's writing it into this first century Uh, really a Gentile audience, a non-Jewish audience. And so they would have understood crucifixion. So he he didn't need to literally get into the gory details of crucifixion because when you say crucifixion that he's going to be crucified or he is crucified, they immediately had in their head what that was. And so he didn't have to go there. Another thing that we need to pay attention to is that there will be some who would want to deny the, the historical accuracy of the details that Mark and other gospel writers include. They would want us to doubt Scripture. And I would say to you, and I know I say this over and over, but just want to take every opportunity to just remind us that scholar, solid scholarly research supports what Scripture says. And we don't have time to get into all of that. I, I love to get into all that. So if anyone wants to talk about any of that, let's set up a meeting and let's talk about all that. But just suffice it to say that what we have of Scripture, what Scripture tells us is accurate. We can trust Scripture. And so, let's jump back into the text with those couple things in mind in verse 15. And verse 15 tells us that they, he delivers him to be crucified and he has him scourged. That's just a normal part of preparing the prisoner in that day and that time to be crucified. They didn't want the crucifixion to linger out over an extended period of time. So, to soften the prisoner up to, to hasten death. They would have them scourged. Scourging was beating a prisoner with a whip that 
would have had spikes or pieces of metal or pieces of bone at the end. So when the person is whipped, it would literally tear at the flesh, inflicting even more damage than whipping alone. And so let's just continue to get the context. It's been Thursday night where Jesus is arrested. He's uh, had this trial gone back and forth uh, in, in, in that trial period that Thursday night. And if you remember, they put, they covered his face and they beat him. So he's already been beaten. He's already gone without sleep, probably uh, dehydrated, all those things going on. And now we see that he's scourged. And so in addition to all of those things, now he's experiencing blood loss. And, And so I just want us, as we are walking through what transpires to understand the depth of the suffering of Jesus. And then he is doing it for us. Verse 16, and the soldiers led him away inside, away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, probably at least a few hundred, a battalion of, of, of soldiers in the Roman, the way the Romans divided them up. It was about 600. It may have been a little less than that because it was within the city. Uh, and they clothed him in, per, in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. And they're striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Jesus is led away. They're getting ready to crucify him. They call together this battalion of soldiers. And they together, you know, circled around him as he's, as he's beaten, as, he's, as they begin to... Uh, again, if several hundred of them begin to have fun at Jesus' expense, there was no love loss between the Romans and the, and the Jews. And so they take an opportunity to mock the king of the Jews. And so they put a robe on him of the color of, of royalty. Purple was a, was, a, was a color that just signified royalty. And then they fashion a crown of thorns. And don't think like a rosebush type thorns that you have in your garden. But imagine the long spiked thorns of that region fashioned together in a crown and maybe you've I don't know if you've ever had the occasion to cut have a cut on your scalp but it bleeds imagine this crown of thorns pressed into the scalp of Jesus and the way the blood would have flowed liberally and here's Jesus now all dressed up and they mock him hail king of the Jews it's been less than a week on the, the, the good or the Palm Sunday that is this Sunday. And as he comes into the, into the city, he's hailed as the king. He's, they, they say, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes, the king of Israel. He's proclaimed as that. And how much has changed in just one short week. And now here he is. Standing in front of these soldiers with this mockery, this, this purple robe and this crown of thorns. They're hailing him, king of the Jews, but they're doing it mockingly. And then they, it says that they beat him with a, with a reed. It was uh, like, kind of like a rod, a, a scepter that a king would have. The scepter would be what would just identify the king's power and position and authority. And they take this, this thing and they begin to beat him with his own authority, kind of the visual of that. 
And they beat him and they spit on him and they kneel in front of him and they make fun of him and they mock him. And when all of that gets old, they take the robe back off of him, strip that away, and they lead him out to be crucified. And so again, more blood, more mockery, more shame, more exhaustion, more suffering, all for us. I want you to notice a word. He says that he was led out. Just like the prophet Isaiah said, as a lamb led to the slaughter, you drive cattle, you drive horses, but you lead sheep. And Jesus, the Passover lamb, is led to the slaughter. He's led to the cross. He's led to the place where he would be sacrificed. And verse 21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So Jesus, like other prisoners of the day, other prisoners and uh, people that had been found guilty and going to be crucified, they would make them carry not the entire cross, not the, not the, the vertical piece, but just the horizontal piece, the cross beam. Scholars say it was probably 100 plus pounds that he would carry, carried on his shoulder. Probably because of how weak he now is, the loss of blood, the exhaustion, the dehydration, all of that going on. He needs help. And so, again, it was a common thing of the culture of the day that's totally historically accurate, that a soldier could compel someone to carry something for them. As a common citizen, they could say, you carry this. And it was law that you had to carry that a mile. Remember what Jesus said? When Jesus said, uh, when someone asks you to carry something one mile, to go the extra mile and carry two, that's what we see here. Again, very accurate historically. The soldiers asking Simon, telling Simon of Cyrene, carry it, carry the cross. Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was a, a Jewish enclave in northern Africa that it was known for in that, in that time, that first century, that it had a significant significant uh, group of Jews in that area. And so uh, Jews would have wanted to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. So for Simon to be from Cyrene and be in Jerusalem was absolutely, again, would in keeping in the day of what they would have done. Another little detail that Mark puts in there, again, that just, just speaks of the historical accuracy of what's going on, he puts who he is exactly, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Probably put that in there so that people that knew Simon of Cyrene, who is the father of Alexander and Rufus, if you knew him, you could go to him, as Mark is writing to this audience, you could go and you could ask him yourself. It's like a citation, a footnote in Scripture. Like we could, as you read something, you read a textbook and you want to check out the citation, you can go to the end, you can see what the site, where the citation is, and then you can go look it up in that other resource. And so that's what Mark is giving us. Go ask yourself. You can ask the guy yourself who carried the cross of Jesus about that experience. And so they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and they divided his clothes, his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. As we mentioned, Mark doesn't give us this moment-by-moment -moment description. You see that there are jumps in time, because people knew. They knew what it was to be crucified. They didn't need all of the detail of what exactly was happening, except he does include things that were fulfillments of Scripture, 
fulfillment of prophecy that had been laid out in Scripture centuries and centuries before. The wine was offered to Jesus. It was a painkiller of sorts, a sedative, and Jesus refused that. Jesus wanted to be fully alert, fully in his humanity, experiencing all of the suffering, all of the pain. Four executioners, squad, says that they divide his garments. Again, that was keeping with what happened in that day, that the executioners were given one of the little perks that they got to keep the, the clothes of the people that they were crucifying, that they were killing, or they were handing out this judgment. And we think, that well, that's, that's kind of odd. That's weird. We throw clothes away, and it's no big deal, and we take them to goodwill, and we got more clothes than we know what to do with. But in their day, clothes were, had a lot more value, and so it was a big deal. And so it says that they gambled, they cast lots for them. And again, this is keeping, in keeping with what the Scripture says, the psalmist wrote prophetically in Psalm 22, verse 18, about what they did as they gambled for his clothes. And then verse 24, just notice the very simple, as I said, very, very simple phrase that says so much, that summarizes so much, and they crucified him. Mark's Gentile audience, non-Jewish audience, primarily, they knew exactly what's being talked about. He didn't have to elaborate. They understood the excruciating pain of the cross. That word, we have a word that comes from the cross. That word excruciating comes from the Latin cruciate. It's a direct reference to crucem, meaning the cross, the same root as crucifixion. So a literal translation of excruciate would be the overwhelming, intense pain of the cross. An entire word that comes from this experience. And so now it's the third hour or around 9 a.m. as the excruciating suffering of the cross, this piece of his suffering begins. In the inscription of the charge against him, the king of the Jews... And with him they crucified two, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would have destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who are crucified with him also reviled him. The Romans would have wanted the people watching, people that would walk by, they would have wanted, they would want them to know what the crime of the person is. They, they want to, this to be a deterrent, a warning that you should obey the Roman law or this will happen to you. And so he puts a description, Pilate does, over Jesus on the cross. King of the Jews. Now, they didn't, they didn't like it. They're like, hey, you need to change that. You need to put on there the claim to be king of the Jews. He's not really the king of the Jews. He just claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate wouldn't do it. He wouldn't change it. And as he does that, he is unwittingly proclaiming truth when he proclaims that Jesus is the king of the Jews. King of all of us. So Jesus is being crucified. There's a thief on each side, a... Um, a, a, a rebel really is a, probably a, a better translation of that. Ones that had incited riots. 
guilty of their crimes. And then here is Jesus in the middle, totally innocent. And it's a place just outside of the city walls, Golgotha. It was a place where people would have walked by. And as they walked by, they began to mock Jesus and the others, wagging their heads, it says. And we've all experienced someone wagging their heads at us in mockery of us, I'm sure, in our lives at some point. And again, this is all fulfillment of the prophecy that we see in the Psalms. And the chief priests are there, Scripture says, and the, the scribes are there, and they are there also, and they're, they're standing around, and they mock Jesus. They talk amongst themselves, or they mock him, and they make fun of him. He saved others, but he can't really save himself. Come down, we'll worship you, king. If they only understood who they're mocking, who Jesus really was. And even the thieves, Scripture says, join in and mock him. Now, Luke adds a little detail that Mark doesn't include, but Luke adds that at the end that one of the thieves tells, he just really defends Jesus and, and he asks him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. In verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, and so again we just see the hours ticking away, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran with a sponge and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's hear, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So it's the sixth hour. It's noon now. Three hours have passed. Darkness descends on the land until, it says, the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And so as Jesus is suffering, the light is being taken away. More than just a, the, an eclipse of some sort, this lasted for hours. Miraculous in and of itself. Darkness through Scripture is a symbol of evil. It's a symbol of coming judgment. And so with that, in the darkness, Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? God turns his back on that moment. And Jesus cries out in the flesh as he's bearing our sin, bearing our shame, as he's separated from God in that moment, feeling the full weight of our sin on the cross, our debt that we owed, the wrath of God poured out on him, Jesus in anguish crying out. Some of those misunderstood what Jesus was saying as he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, they think he's calling out for Elijah. He's not calling out for Elijah. And so they run and get him something to drink, maybe to prolong his life to see if Elijah will come, again mocking him. And now the end is near. Jesus' suffering is at its climax. The physical pain, the torture is excruciating. All of the physical, the spiritual, the emotional, the psychological suffering that Jesus is enduring, and again, to be reminded for us. In verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud voice, or uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so in the darkness, Jesus cries out, fully conscious until the very end, having said no to things that they would have given him to have dulled the pain and dulled his senses, but fully 
conscious. He takes his final breath on the cross. God's judgment on human sin being satisfied. Our sin debt paid in full. Reinforcing that all of this is part of God's plan at the very same time in the confines of the temple, the sacrifices were being made. And as those, those animals were being sacrificed, we see on a hill just outside the city, Jesus once and for all becomes the once and for all sacrifice for all of humanity for all time. If we're paying attention, we see in Scripture parallels. We see in the story the parallels. We see in the story the the plan of God. Jesus becoming sin for us. Do you remember what the, the high priest did? If you were here last week, remember what he did when, when he asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you, are you divine? Are you equal to God? Remember what Jesus said to him? Yes, I, basically he says to him, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. And yes, I am equal to God. I am the Son of God. Is basically what he's saying to, uh, to the high priest. And that was the, just the, the pinnacle when the high priest about, his head about exploded. But what he does is he rips, it says, his garments. Just as a show of, of his anger, his show of, of just this intense emotion. And what do we see here in this moment? That the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Can you imagine in that moment as Jesus dies, God grabbing grabbing that curtain and ripping it from top to bottom, reminiscent of the priest. Ripping that curtain that divided the worshipers, understanding the cost that, that he had just paid and now forever ripping that curtain that separated God from his worshipers, God from humanity. And now, because of Jesus, a direct access has been opened to God the Father through Jesus. An exclamation point of the reality that the sin debt has been satisfied on the cross. And then we have what we're going to look at today, the final words that we want to look at today. The words of this hardened Roman centurion executioner as the body of Jesus lies or is now hanging dead on the cross, having breathed his last, he gives the testimony as he looks, this professional purveyor of death looks at Jesus and gives the testimony, truly, this man was the Son of God. Pilate had unwittingly named him as the king of the Jews with his sign on the cross. And now the centurion, this Roman officer, proclaims that Jesus is the Son of God, confessing him as the Son of God. Now, in the few minutes we have left, let me just real quick help us to understand some things I think are really important for us to take away today, to remember today as we just sit in the reality of what Jesus did for us on the cross. First, to take with us that the cross is scandalous. Now, in our culture, the cross is in vogue. How many of us wear cross necklaces and earrings and maybe we have a cross tattoo or maybe in our homes we've got crosses on the walls where we decorate with them and we have... We have people who are the fashion icons, and they're, it's, it's just in the garb. It's, again, it's in all the places. It's kind of the, 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 the thing, no matter whether you follow Jesus or not, 
to wear the cross. But in the first century, it wasn't that way at all. Only hardened criminals would be crucified. The, the historians tell us that you didn't talk about crucifixion in polite company. They would use other words to describe or other phrases to describe crucifixion. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. And here is Jesus, this religious teacher, this healer, this Messiah, who is executed shockingly in this most disgraceful of ways by the crucifixion, by the cross. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, despising the shame of the cross, being publicly executed between criminals, willing to suffer that humiliation. In, in Jewish culture, if someone was, was crucified, if someone was hung from a tree, they were said to be cursed by God. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written in Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And oh, by the way, that is proper English. You hang, you, 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 anyway. Uh, I looked it up because I was like, shouldn't that be hung? Anyway, uh, he willingly became a curse for us. A curse to hang on a tree. But Jesus endured that shame, endured the cur curse, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be free. May we never forget the scandal of the cross. Secondly, the cross, remember, is transformative. It, it transformed the thief. The thief who, at one minute, we see that Mark records, he's mocking Jesus. He reviles Jesus with, with, the, other, with the others there. And then something happened as he, as he hangs there with Jesus and he realizes who Jesus is. And he defends Jesus. And he asks Jesus to remember him. And Jesus says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Not as a thief, not as a rebel deserving death, but you will be with me in paradise, forgiven and free life transformed at the last moment. And then what about the Roman centurion? The Roman centurion, this leader of the executioners, quite possibly he was the one that had overseen the scourging of Jesus. He was maybe the one who, who had joined in the mockery. And yet, as he has overseen this crucifixion, now we see him in the end having been transformed, proclaiming Jesus as truly the Son of God. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, And you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So, as we put our faith in Christ, our lives are transformed. We celebrate that today. With the scandal of the cross, the transformation that comes through the cross. As, as that passage relates to us, we were dead in our sins. And now we've been made alive. We've been transformed. We've been forgiven our sin debt. The record canceled, nailed to the cross. The cross is transformative. And finally, the cross is absolutely indispensable. What Christ did on the cross is absolutely indispensable to our faith, to our salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so we have a whole group of people in our world that the cross is folly to them. But for us who are being saved, it's indispensable. It's the power of God. It's the power for forgiveness. It's the power for justification, being declared righteous before God. Not because of our good works, not because we're good people, not because we come to church, not because we do good things, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus paying for our sin so that we could be made right by God, made possible by the cross. The cross is indispensable to our faith, to our salvation, to our relationship with God, to our eternal home. Friends, there is no salvation without the cross. And so as our worship team comes back up, there's one final question I want us to consider. The sobering question for all of us, what is the cross to you? Is a piece of jewelry? Is an icon? What is the cross to you? Friends, I hope it's a reminder of God's love for you, of his desire to be in relationship with you, of his willingness to send his son to the cross so that you could experience life with him, abundant, eternal life with him. I hope it's a reminder of what Christ did, enduring all of it for you, willing to endure the scandal, the curse of the cross for you. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds we have been healed friends is it a symbol of your salvation is it a symbol for your salvation I hope it is if you've never invited Christ to be your savior Today, what a wonderful day to to make that decision. I'm going to pray for us in just a minute. And as I pray, I would invite you to repent of whatever sin you have to repent. To embrace Christ as Savior. To thank Him for what He did for you on the cross. To embrace Him as your Lord, as your Savior. And if you'd like, we'd love to send you some resources. We'd love to connect with you personally. You can do that by texting the word Jesus to 269-231. 8692. And again, this week we'd love to connect with you and send you some resources to be helpful in that walk with Christ. Today we're going to take communion. We've got some individuals that are, no, we're going we're to come forward today. And so as we come forward today, we've got at the corners here, we've got an opportunity, a place for you to come and to just be reminded of what Jesus did for you. As we take the bread the bread representing the body of Christ that was nailed to a cross to make a way for our salvation. The cup, the blood that was shed, spilt for our redemption. It's a way for us to remember the forgiveness that we can experience through Jesus. And so today as we think about Christ and we think about all that he did for us, all that he willingly gave for us, let's worship him and remember what he did. And so let me just remind you of a classic old him whose words are so rich on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain so I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down I'll cling to the old rugged cross 
and exchange it someday for a crown. Listen, Heavenly Father, that's our prayer. That's our worship today. Father, we thank you for the old rugged cross. Thank you, Father, to the world, it's crazy. But to those who bring saved, we understand it's the power of God, the power for forgiveness, the power for new life, the power for the abundant life that Christ came to bring. And Father, today, as we take communion, we remember. We remember the sacrifice. We remember what Christ did for us. And so, God, I just pray for that individual that today is making that decision to embrace Christ as their Savior, God. And so today, we repent of our sin. And we just say, God, yes, we recognize that that we've got a problem. We thank you, God, that you sent Christ. And he gave his life to satisfy the penalty that I owed because of my sin. Thank you. And now I embrace Jesus as my Savior, as my Lord. And God, as we have prayed that prayer, as we've made that decision, whether we did it today or whether we did it a decade or two or five or ten decades ago, maybe not ten decades ago, but a lot of decades ago, Father, as we we remember Jesus, we celebrate what he did for us on the cross as we worship. And we pray in Jesus' name.